The worst part of all of this is my wife is completely ignoring me having a conversation in the back right now. Oh, hi, sweetheart. I love you. No, I, I didn't mean it that way. I just, come on. All right. So we are in the book of Romans, and I just want to warn you that I've got about 30 minutes, and I ran it this morning. It was an hour, so we're going to get going. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to rock and roll. We are in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 12. We have been going chapter by chapter. And this is one of those books that is utterly meaty. There is so much in here, and it's not one of those things where we can just kind of take a couple of chapters. It's not narrative where you're just telling a story. This is thick theology. At least it has been up until this point. Because for the first 11 chapters, Paul is making a point about the gospel. And he's been just kind of teasing that out. And then in chapter 12, he transitions completely and he dives into how should we live in light of the gospel. So last week, Lee really taught on the, the first two verses he hammered home and then he did a couple more verses beyond that. But I just want to read the very first verse of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, some of your Bibles say, spiritual act of worship. And this is one of the most um, famous, powerful verses in Scripture, and Lee spent an entire week just kind of focusing on, on that section but I was taught early on that any time that you come to, you know, that first word there, therefore, any time you read that in Scripture, you always want to ask yourself, well, what's the therefore? Why did he write that? Because a therefore indicates that something he's about to say is, is kind of based off of something that's already come. Because of this, this. So here's what we're going to do for the first five minutes this morning. We're going to do a little bit of review. We're going to remember what we've already learned because everything that we're about to talk about for the next four to ten weeks, who knows how long we're going to take on this thing, um, is going to be contingent upon what's already been said. The foundation's been laid. But we're not going to begin in Romans chapter 1. Instead, what I want to do is I want to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. I want to go back to the very beginning and ask you this question, and I seriously want you to consider it for a moment. Why did God create us? Just think about that for a moment. Why did God create mankind? Because how you answer that question will completely affect your entire worldview. It will affect the way you view God, the way that you view other people, the way you view yourself, and your relationship with all of those other individuals. So why did God create us in the first place? Now, there's been a lot of answers throughout history. One person, a guy named um, John Calvin, answered that God created in order to glorify himself, that we are intended to bring glory to God. And there's a plenty of scriptures to support that. But because of his conclusion that God created to glorify himself, if you tease it out, that means, Calvin would argue, that God retains complete sovereignty or control over everything. And if we were to take that to its logical conclusion, that means that before time ever began, everything that was ever going to happen, including every decision you will ever make, the number of blinks you will have, the number of breaths you will have, and every decision that's made was determined by God. And that's hard for some of us because we're like, well, that makes me kind of feel like a puppet. But that is one perspective. If God created to glorify himself, that's kind of the logical conclusion. Now, there's other people. Jacobus Arminius was actually in a response to that, said, no, 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 no. God didn't create to glorify himself. God created for a desire for relationship. That's why he made mankind, for relationship, because God is love and he desires to have love. 
Well, if you base it off of that, then in order to have a genuine relationship, you need to have what? You need to have free will. You need to have the ability to choose not to love. Otherwise, I would have a computer that says, good morning, Eric, I love you, but it doesn't actually love me. It doesn't have the ability to say, I don't love you. So my, son and my sons have the ability to choose to love me because they have free will, and they also have the ability to choose not to love me. So he would say, God created for relationship, therefore he must give us free will, therefore he must limit his sovereign control over everything to allow us to have free will, to allow us to choose And because of that, therefore, it it goes into a whole bunch of different things. Do you see two completely different answers and two completely different theological worldviews based off of this question of why did God create us? Are we thoroughly confused yet? Because I would argue this. Both of those answers, you're going, well, which one is correct? Did he create to glorify himself? Did he create for love? And I would say both, in a way. But neither of those answers is sufficient. And how can they they coexist? It works because God, it's God. And honestly, to wrap our mind around it, that's not the focus of this morning. But I would argue that there's a third answer that we actually find in the the beginning of the Bible that helps kind of wrap all of these together. I told you, I'm not firing on all cylinders right now, so hold on, it's going to be a wild, bumpy ride today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you have, you turn to the very first page of your Bible, you're probably there. I would argue that this is another answer we must consider for the question of why did God create mankind? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. And so he goes on to say, so he created them, male and female, he created them in order to have dominion over creation. Here's the point. God created mankind to act as his royal representatives. A king who had a kingdom would send delegates or representatives to go out and represent him throughout the kingdom. He would lend them his authority so that what they said, it was as if the king was saying it. The decisions they made, it was as if if the king was making that decision. They ruled not because they had authority in and of themselves, but because the king had given it to them. They were his representatives. And to mistreat one of those representatives was tantamount to mistreating the king himself. Does that make sense? That's why God created mankind, to be his representatives throughout creation, to have dominion. And yes, to bring glory to himself. And no, they were never intended to do their rule on their own. They were to do it in relationship with him. So both of those, to glorify himself and for love, are absolutely in that. But at the end of the day, Scripture suggests that the reason that God created was so that we would be his representatives. But we know how this story plays out. The serpent comes in and begins to undermine the the dependence and the trust that Adam and Eve, our most ancient ancestors, had in our God. Did God really say this? You won't die if you eat that fruit. He's holding out on you. He's made you deficient. And suddenly, when they begin to question whether God really is good and trustworthy, the fruit looks a whole lot more appetizing. They take a bite, and in that moment, sin comes into God's good creation, warping everything he's made, 
altering the way that they view themselves, view one another, and view God, and it sends them into hiding both from, the, from one another and from their God. And it is into that melu that Paul begins Romans chapter 1. And for four chapters, he talks about the fact that the same sin that corrupted Adam and Eve and severed their relationship with their God and hindered them from representing him lives in each one of us. That we have a sin nature that's inherent, that we, have, we were born with. And it hinders us from having intimate relationship with God and it hinders us from being his representative. And he spends four chapters making that one point. And then he points to things like the law that the Jews in, in his audience that he's writing to would have pointed to and said, wait, wait a minute, we've got the law. This is how we attain righteousness. And Paul goes, no. That law that you look as a ladder to help you get to heaven was never intended to be a ladder to heaven. If anything, it was intended to be a spotlight shining on your sin nature so that you will recognize just how desperately you need a Savior. Hopefully this is all review for you. Unless you're visiting, in which case, welcome. Glad you're here. So the law is not a ladder to righteousness. Instead, it is the x-rays that show us the cavity so that we're willing to go sit down in the dentist's seat so that he can actually do the work of fixing us. The law shows us our inherent brokenness so that we are drawn into the arms of a Savior and say, Jesus, I give you my life. Because here's the point. That's part of the gospel message, the good news. The, and it's funny when we say the good news is that you can't fix yourself. But that's part of it. So that then you go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I am wretched, therefore I need that grace. And God said, what you are unable to do for yourself, I will do for you. And he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die in our place. His blood washing us clean. His death for our life. So that no longer are we separated from God because of our sin. Instead, we who were once sinners can be called saints. We who were once prodigals who were far from home can be welcomed home. We become sons and daughters of the living God adopted and given the Holy Spirit to reside in us. So we're not separated from the God. All of a sudden we have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that anointed Jesus Christ living in us. And for 11 chapters, Paul has been teasing this good news out. And then we come to Romans chapter 12. So hopefully you can turn there quickly. Then he comes to Romans chapter 12 after he has spent 11 chapters teasing out this idea that we are sinners who have been saved by grace. And the only standing we have in God's presence is his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy not our effort, because none of us have earned it. Not a single one of us deserved to be declared righteous, and yet he declares us righteous instead because of what Jesus did for us. So then we come to Romans chapter 12, and Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and that word mercy there in the original Greek is actually plural, mercies. In view of all that God has done, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and appropriate or spiritual act of worship. Worship is more than singing songs. It is literally an act of submitting our lives to God. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is his thesis statement for the next five chapters. And Paul is now going to spend the next five chapters exploring what this looks like to be living sacrifices. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter just so we can have context, just so you can hear it all together. But I'm only going to actually talk about five verses. And next week, Lee's going to cover the rest of the chapter. But I want you to feel and see his train of thought here. So how are we to be living sacrifices? He says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to... I'm sorry, we have different gifts. Where am I? There we are. Okay, got it. Verse 6. Wow. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. He goes on from there to talk about how we need to forgive and not seek to, you know, don't try to judge and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to go ahead and stop. Do you see the different feel here? He's gone from trying to tease out theology to now going, how now should we live in light of what God has done for us? The gospel message has been declared. Now, how should we live? The first thing he does is he reminds us of who we are in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Let's go back to verse 4. In verse 4 he says, For just as each one of us has one body with many members or many parts, right? I am, I am the sum total of all the parts of my body. I've got two arms, two legs, a nose, two eyes, and all that kind of stuff. We are, made, we are a body with many parts, and yet those parts do not all have the same function. And so in Christ, we though are, we are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have to remember that Paul was writing to a church that had tons and tons of fault lines that threatened to tear that church apart. I mean, you had, first off, we talked a lot about the Jew-Gentile, these different cultural backgrounds. Some people had been steeped in the Jewish tradition and in the Jewish faith and in the law of Moses. And then you have the Gentiles who are non-Jews who have not been brought up that way and now they're shoved together under the banner of Jesus Christ. They're trying to live together and they keep having friction. On top of that, you've got men and women who in a society where they didn't often interact are all of a sudden thrown together as well. And you've got that friction. You've got slaves and their masters in some cases actually doing church together because a lot of these congregations were home church 
gathering. So you have slaves and their masters interacting as equals. And so on and so forth. You begin to see that you have all these fault lines. And Paul says, let, let me remind you, please, that we are all part of the same body. That although we are different, we are all actually one in Jesus Christ. And we have different purposes, different strengths. But we're still one. One body. So what one person does reflects on everybody. I think that Paul's reminder here is tremendously important to us today because we live in a day and an age where it is so easy to buy into this us versus them mentality. Either it's through social media, through just watching television, reading the newspaper. There is so much going on right now where we are being pitted against one another because we have all of those same things, cultural differences, religious differences in backgrounds, Affluence levels. Some people from college, some people who haven't gone to college, you know, some people who are very wealthy, other people who are living in their cars. And we are all one congregation, but we add on to that political stances. Are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Are you Independent? Are you Green Party or whatever? We add on to that then, even within the church, denominational differences. Are you Reformed? Are you Anglican? Are you Baptist? Are you Anabaptist? Are you, you know, uh, Catholic? Are you non-denominational? Which has become a denomination in and of itself, right? There's all these different denominations and we all have our different perspectives on some theological things and we're like looking at one another and going, well, ours, we're right, you're wrong and so anywhere that we disagree, you're in the wrong. And I'll add on top of that then all of the social issues that are going on. I wrote down a few of them here. I mean, just in the last months, these are the things that have been coming up. Um, homosexual marriage, the environment and how we should be dealing with that. This whole Planned Parenthood thing. Gun rights. What is our stance on that? GMO versus non-GMO. Vaccines and all that. Angels versus Dodgers. <laughs> Although if you were wise right now, you'd probably go on Dodgers, unless your name is Robin or Clint. Please don't... No. Oh, just Emily. Okay. House divided, huh? Okay. All of these things, and it's so easy to play us versus them and point the finger and kind of step back and distance ourselves from one another. And Paul is reminding us right here at the very beginning of the passage we're looking at today, remember, as living sacrifices, you are a son or a daughter of God and you are part of a family. And I want to remind you, that although we have dozens of churches here in Orange County, actually probably hundreds of churches in Orange County, but dozens of churches just here in Costa Mesa alone, and hundreds of thousands of churches around the globe, seen from a theological perspective of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is only one church. Jesus Christ is the head of it. And although we, are, we look different some churches are small. Other churches are large. Some churches use pyrotechnics and, and lights and, and loud electrical guitars. Other churches use pipe organs and only do hymns. Some churches are very social-minded. They get out in the streets and they're working on social justice issues. And other, other churches, their trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. And they are just looking to hide His Word in their heart, but sometimes they get stuck cloistered within the walls of the church and they forget that God also calls them to go be light. 
There are so many different iterations of church. Uh, Pretty much a church is like a snowflake. Every single one is different based upon who is there. And Paul simply reminds us, though we look different, though we focus on different things, though we have different hobby horses, though we have different traditions and approaches and liturgies, which is kind of how like a, a service plays out, although we have all of those things, don't buy into us versus them because at the end of the day, you are family. You are, bo- you are the single body of Jesus Christ in different, living in different areas and ministering to different communities. So live that way. Approach life that way. Minister that way. Be unified. And then sadly, though, when I stand back and look at it, all too often, and I see it in my own heart here, all too often we buy into the us versus them and we point fingers and we get into theological arguments with our brothers and sisters online about really teeny tiny family arguments and we forget that we are called to be a representative of Jesus Christ. God said, this is how the world, I'm sorry, Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the way you love one another. I'm going to do that again. This is how the world will know you're my disciples. How? Oh, good. Yeah, excellent. That's how the world will know. By our love. And then the world looks at us. And we look like we are one stinking dysfunctional family. We're in competition with one another. We try to steal sheep from other pastures. Hey, come over here with us. We're better. We do this better. We're bigger. Oh, we're smaller. We only have one service. We have meals after service. Here's the thing. I love that we have lots of people from all over the community, some who go to other churches that bring their kids to our preschool, but we're not looking to get them to come to our church. They already have community. My desire is that this church, I know Lee's desire is that this church would be interacting with people who would never step foot in this church. People who do not have a community and say, come and do life with us. That we would live lives that attract people to Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, our relationship with them is simply a means to their relationship with Him. We are called as family to do life together, and I feel like we do it really well here. But if you're coming here and you're not drawing closer to Jesus Christ, then there's a problem with our community. And I hope that's not the case. And if we start looking at other churches and start playing us versus them and competing against them, we have missed the point, and that is there is one church, we're all one body, and we are called to use the different gifts, abilities, and resources that God has entrusted to our care to bless them and to be a light into our community. I think I've beat that horse enough. Let's move on. How will the world know we're his disciples? By the way that we, what? Love. Awesome. How do we do that? How can we love? Well, he's going to go into a lot of them. Lee's going to look at some of them next week. I'm just going to look at one way. And that is through the gifts that God entrusts to us, our spiritual abilities. Paul says this in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. I'm going to stop there for just a second. I want to explain what he's just said. That word gift is the word charisma. It's from the word that we get charismatic in the English language. It means an ability to do something that is supernaturally empowered in us. And it's from the root word charis. And that root word charis is actually the word grace. So when we read this sentence again, 
I'm going to, we have different charismas according to the charis given to each one of us. In other words, our giftings are literally a gift from God. Our abilities are supernaturally enabled us because of God's mercy and His grace in our life. And how does He do it? He gives us the Holy Spirit to reside within us, the same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus Christ on the day that He was baptized when God blessed Him and said, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I'm well pleased, and sent Him out into His ministry. That same Spirit resides in us. That same Spirit that anointed the disciples who became apostles after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ultimately rose into the heavens... The Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost and they began to go out and share the good news in other languages, nonetheless. And they began to heal people and raise the dead and feed people miraculously. And in all of these ways and so many more, people began to go, there is a God and Jesus Christ is the Messiah and we are willing to listen to the good news because God was using these individuals as His representatives. You're beginning to see the tie-in Back to Genesis chapter 1. Suddenly, with the gift of the Holy Spirit and and Jesus' washing us clean, we become his representatives again. And the gifts that we have become a way that we can bless the body of Christ, build it up, love one another, and also be a light in the darkness. A couple things I want to tease out here. Just kind of talking about the spiritual gifts. First off, we know one person has all the spiritual gifts. Nobody. There's a reason why we need one another. God has not designed us to be islands in and of ourselves who just do our own thing and can do everything for us. We need one another. I may have the ability to speak in public and teach, but you better believe I do not have the ability to be administrative. Many of you have experienced that huge lack. I'm grateful that he has entrusted to me a wife It partnered me with her. She is extremely administrative. That's why if you ever want to put something on our calendar, don't come talk to me. Talk to her. Because she is gifted in that area. There are people who have been gifted. There's a ton of them. And in a few minutes, we're going to look at the spiritual gifts. But don't for a moment think that you have everything and that you don't need people. That's why we need one another. But this is something I'm seeing that scares me about the the, the church, the body of Christ. Far too often, people with the same spiritual giftings like to hang out together. We surround ourselves with people just like us. People who speak in tongues go, I want to be around other people who speak in tongues. And so they congregate over in this church and they all talk to one another, but nobody's listening. And, and people who are really discerning, who are the ears of the body, congregate around one another and they all listen, but nobody's talking. And people who are discerning and they have the eyes to see things, the eyes all congregate around one another and they just watch one another. (laughs) And the hands, they're out doing stuff, but they forget who they're doing it for and by the power by which they're doing it. Do you see the problem here? Is we begin to break the body of Christ down into its constituent parts and we all get together. And it's kind of like me saying, I baked this amazing cake. I want, it, want you to try it. And I pull out this big tray, and on that tray is a bowl of eggs and a bowl of salt and a bowl of sugar, hopefully bigger than the bowl of salt, and a bowl of flour, about the same size as the bowl of sugar when I make cakes, and, and the butter, and it's all separated. And I go, look, it's a deconstructed cake. And you go, that might be all the things I would need to make a cake, but that does not look appetizing. My kids would go for the bowl of sugar, but that's about it. 
And that's the point. When the body of Christ separates ourselves and we begin to go, because I am not like the rest of them, I am uniquely different, I have nothing to offer because obviously it's not appreciated, so I'm going to go somewhere where there's other people just like me, and guess what we do? A hand takes off, and all of a sudden you've got a body with maybe one hand. Or an eye says, I'm out of here because I'm not needed. I'm going to go to this place that has 42 other eyes, and I'm going to hang there. We need one another, and if you have unique giftings and abilities that are different from other people, thank you for being here because we need you. I need people like Diane Winicky who has the gift of hospitality, and she and her husband Byron, because let's not forget, it's his home too, they open their home regularly. (laughs) They open their home regularly to our small group, which I'm so grateful for the way that they are mom and dad to us and love on us. They open their home to people who have needed, like the Bruffs got to live there for a little while when Jim first had his heart attack and he couldn't go home. And they've been generous with that. And they open their home to people who just need a a listening ear. They are busy individuals, but they are always interruptible. And they're always there for somebody who just needs to sit down and talk. Their door is usually unlocked. And when it's not, you don't want to go in. Because Byron's probably sunning himself. I've walked in one time. It was... (laughs) Never mind. I think about people like Art Mitchell. This guy is bold for the gospel. I remember we were coming back from... The, the men's retreat and we we stopped off at a flower shop to get flowers I'm not saying that because I'm trying to pat my own back it was his idea we stopped off to get flowers for our wives I'm going and searching through the flowers looking for the ones that are less dead he strikes up a conversation with the woman behind the counter finds out that she has a little baby in a bassinet right behind there that her boyfriend's just left her and she's feeling just out of control and by the time I've picked flowers he has gotten her to the point of saying sharing the gospel and asking if we can pray for her I love people with that boldness because quite honestly I don't have it that is not my strength I can do it but man it just flows out of him he doesn't even have to work at it and so I want to fan that flame I think of people who have the gift of construction because I have the gift of deconstruction. And so I think about people like Steve Lazar, Tony Pekka. Oh my gosh, I, you know, I've got like 12 of you written down here and I can remember two of you right now. And I'm like, please still help me even though I can't remember your name. I mean, you know who you are. Uh, Byron, Jim Bruff. You, you know... These are the kind of guys who make things look beautiful, who are willing to work with their hands, can put things together, and they don't just do it here at the church. They're doing it anywhere that's needed. Half the time I go, hey, Tony, can you help me with this? He goes, actually, I'm, I'm flying up to this person's house, and I'm going to be working on their house. How do you know them? Oh, I just met them one time, and they needed some help. Seriously. Steve, what are you up to? Well, I'm overpainting this person's house. Byron, what are you doing? I'm breaking rocks with my hands. You know? <laughs> You have people who have the gifts of help who are always willing to dive in. Mike, you're one of those guys. I don't ever have to question. If you are available, you are there to help, and you have a truck, which is a double gift for me. <laughs> and I'm so, I, I could go on and on all day long. I could talk about, you know, I, I love being a part of a small community because I actually know you, and I could look at each face and go, here, D, you have the gift of deconstruction with me. Anything that we've done together, but we do it with love. I could go on. The fact is, 
God has created us with different gifts and abilities. And we, when we use them, it glorifies him, and it builds up the body, and it creates unity. This is how we experience love. When my wife and I had our son prematurely, and we were overwhelmed in life, you guys made us meals and brought them. And it was just a life ring in a time where we were feeling completely overwhelmed. And it reminded us, you are not alone in this. Because maybe I tell you honestly, we felt alone. But then we didn't. It is so easy when you are just overwhelmed to feel like, God, where are you? And then when his body wraps its arms around you and gives you a steaming plate of food that smells so good, it just reminds you, we're not alone. So thank you for that. Thank you for those of you who have the gift of, of intercession and prayer and have just showered prayers on people. We need you. I could go on and on. I mean, you're probably thinking right now, well, what kind of gifts are you talking about, Eric? Can we go ahead and throw that slide up? I'll get to that in a second. I, I skipped one, but I'll get there. Spiritual gifts. There's a bunch of different places. There's no one definitive list in all of Scripture where it says, here are all the gifts that the Spirit gives to people or empowers people with. But there are plenty of places that talk about spiritual gifts. I'm just going to look at the two biggest ones, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. There's also Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, for those of you who don't have the gift of keen eyesight. Ironically, all the young ones that do have good eyesight sit up front. So Romans 12. We have a bunch of different gifts. It's also written in your outlines here. Prophecy. And by prophecy, I do not mean simply foretelling the future. Prophecy means simply speaking the words of God. Prophets are the kind of people who would come and say, you guys are sinning right now. You guys are living in such a way that it's hurting God's heart and you must repent. Prophets were not exactly very popular people. And I've got a friend who, who has that prophetic gift that God calls him to kind of sometimes speak to pastors and go, you guys need to repent. And pastors don't like to repent. And so he finds himself kind of bopping around. Prophets are an important gift to the church, and you're welcome here. Serving. The root word is diakonos, basically deacons. These are the people who are willing to dive in. I've listed a few of you here that are just like, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I use the hands to bless this place and to do the things that need to get done? You need me to make a meal? I will do that. You need me to organize this thing? I will do that. You need me to move a whole bunch of junk because you're exhausted? Jake McCoy will do that, even when he's exhausted himself. I'm here for you, Eric. Did that yesterday. Thank you, Jake. Teaching. Basically taking from the words of God and helping make sense of them. Encouraging also known as exhortation, basically calling people out. You can do this, but it's more than that. It's, you need to do this. This is, you know, and just calling people out. I'm not going to be able to go deep in, in, into each of this. Giving. We hear that and go, oh, money. See, I know churches are just about the money. Giving is way more than just financially. We have different, some have time, talents, and treasures. Some of you who are retired have a lot more time than you have treasures. Giving of your time is gift that you can use to bless people. Giving of your talents, your abilities, is a blessing. And then giving of your treasures, the things that God has entrusted. It goes beyond monetary things. Some of you use, a, if you have a ski boat, you can bless people with that. If you have an ability, like the ability to bake, like Jake, 
teaching other people how to do that or blessing them with that. That is a use of your gift and a generous spirit. And so many of you are good at that. Leadership. Lee has got, I'm so grateful for Lee's leadership here. He sees vision and he's constantly going, hey, Eric, you've got to remember about this. And I'm learning from him and I'm so grateful for him in that role because, quite honest, i got a lot to learn. And then mercy. Oh, thank goodness for my wife because she actually is nurturing. Otherwise, my boys would be feral, quite honestly. <laughs> Son, it's time for you to kill a lion. And then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm not going to go, I'm not, I'm not going to belabor this, but you have words of wisdom is one of the, the gifts that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of you have walked a long time, have, have been following Jesus Christ, and you've learned things along the way. Sometimes from banging your head against a wall enough times for you to realize that's not a door. And there are some of us who desperately need to hear that. That's why the body of Christ needs to be made up of different generations, quite honestly. My generation desperately needs those of you with grayer hair. Their generation desperately needs people like me and you. And we desperately need them because you guys have young backs and excitement. And we need your zeal. And your frizzy hair. I love your hair. If I had your hair, fro, every day. I'd be like going sideways to get through doors. Words of knowledge. I'm sorry, I'm loopy, okay? I was out in the sun for 12 hours yesterday, maybe six. It's hyperbole. It is a, a literary device, not a character flaw, so please don't judge me. Words of knowledge. This is for those of you who went to the women's thing or, or to the men's retreat, Ed McGlasson is one of those guys that his teaching style incorporates words of knowledge. Some of you experienced this. He would be talking, and in, kind of in mid-sentence or in mid-point, he would stop, and he would look right into somebody's eyes, and he would speak directly to them. And nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, it was like, boom, right to the heart. And there were a couple of times where it wasn't exactly that, and that's, here's the reason why. Because we're human. Because we don't do things perfectly, and sometimes what we think is from the Holy Spirit is really pizza from last night, or is just an idea, or you reminded, or somebody reminded him of somebody, and he thought the same thing. Whatever it is, here's the thing: I talked to Ed after that. I said I, I was, I was really, really appreciative of the way that you stopped, and I talked to so many of the people that you pointed out at the men's retreat, and you cut them to the core, and you said things that you could have not possibly known, but it ministered directly to where they were at. But then once or twice it felt like it didn't really connect. He goes, yeah, because I am just trusting the Holy Spirit to guide me. And sometimes what I think is from the Holy Spirit isn't. And so I will still speak it. And I will never say, thus saith the Lord, because that's a dangerous way to go. Because if you're wrong, now you've just spoken for the Lord something he's not speaking. But I'll say, hey, here's what I feel impressed to say to you. And I'm trusting that their spirit is going to be discerning enough to be able to take it and if it belongs to them, to hold on to it. But if it's not from, my, for it's not from God, then for their spirit to be discerning enough to reject it. And Eric, I've learned this, practiced it. I've made a fool of myself. I've been willing to step out and say things, trusting that, the Holy, that, that I'm listening. I don't do it perfectly. And I appreciate that because, quite honestly, I think that we are a culture that's terrified of messing up. And so in order to avoid messing up, we don't do anything. And we bottle up our gifts and we never practice because, going back to the point that I totally skipped, 
a spiritual gift is like a muscle. The only way it's going to grow is if we work it out, if we practice it. That's the only way we're going to strengthen those muscles. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any of those things that you've just listed. And I know that I I only did like half of the ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but we're running out of time. You might be thinking, I don't have any gifts, to which I would say absolutely not true. But you may not be aware of them because you have not been working those muscles out. You need to give yourself freedom to try things and make a mistake. You need to allow yourself to just, if you don't, if if you feel drawn to pray for people and you don't really know how to do that, we have plenty of people in this church who are amazing prayer warriors. Come and talk to me. I'd love to introduce you to one of them and you can be mentored by them. You can walk with them. You can join us on Sunday mornings at about 9.36 because we try to start at 9.30, but you know, it's Southern California. And we would love the opportunity to pray with you and, and to practice and all that kind of stuff. The more we do something, the better we get at it. Now, uh, several decades back there, somebody came up with something called a spiritual gifts test. I have a love-hate relationship with spiritual gifts tests. I love them in a way because it is a great way for us to go, well, I don't know what gifts I have. So you take a test and you can find like four, 42 of them online, all free, all pretty solid. But you can go online and you can answer some questions and it says, here are your gifts. And it'll maybe list five or six gifts that you probably have based upon your answers. I appreciate them in the sense that it's like a mirror that you hold up to be able to see what you already know about yourself. Because the reality is we're the ones who are answering it. We're answering it subjectively and we typically answer it based upon what we're already doing. So if you're already opening your home for a small group to meet in it, I have the gift of hospitality. No wonder I'm having a small group in my house. Or maybe you have the gift of hospitality because you've been working that muscle. You've been part of praying for people. You grab the sheet of prayer requests each week. I have the gift of intercession. Or you've been working that muscle out and you've also been learning that. It definitely helps us to recognize our bents and the unique giftings that God has given us. But here's my one major complaint with spiritual gift tests. My biggest concern with them. And that is that they become a limitation. They become blinders to the way that God can use us. Here's what I mean. You go online and you take a test and you basically say, here's the things that I've already done and it pops back. Here are your spiritual gifts, the muscles that you've worked out. And you say, that is the list of the ways that God can use me. And then you go over to somebody's small group and there's somebody who is visiting the group who has cancer. Would you pray for this person for healing? I don't have the gift of healing. Not me. Or somebody is hurting. I know God has healed lots of people, but he doesn't use me because I don't have the gift of healing. So you never put your hand on them. You never pray for them. May I be the first to say, I've prayed for lots of people, laid hands on lots of you, and you didn't get better. Your, your, Your sciatic problems didn't immediately go away. In some cases, people died. Not because of my prayer, but in spite of them. Do you know what I'm saying here? And yet, I think of Ramsey the Gear. Usually sitting back there. He's probably at the fair right now. I don't know. Four years ago, when I first came here, I went and visited the Rorden group. And he was a next-door neighbor of the Rordens. And they had invited him over because he was about to go in for cancer surgery. And they were going to pray for him. They said, Eric, would you pray? And I said, we're all going to pray. So we all laid hands on him and we all prayed. 
And miraculously, Ronnie's, Ramsey's, whatever his name is, cancer is gone. And he's cancer-free today. And I can tell you, he believes in healing. I'll tell you, Eric Wayman doesn't have the gift of healing. But God does. And the moment that I think that he can't use me to do something that's not on my list of spiritual gifts is the moment that I limit my God. I tell you that Peter had the ability to sit in a boat. He did not have the ability to walk on water. But the moment that he trusted Jesus and got out of the boat, he walked on water. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus and focused it on his own ability, he took a swim. I tell you that none of the apostles, none of the disciples in that upper room had ever spoken in tongues before. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, suddenly they found themselves outside speaking in different languages that other people could understand because they were speaking in true languages. And people heard the gospel message in their own language. And they're like, dude, those guys are drunk. And, and Peter's like, no, it's not. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. God can use us for things that are above and beyond what we think we can be used for. I think sometimes we limit him because we don't have faith in ourselves. So let us never forget that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are just that. They're gifts given to us, not for our own good. Not so that we can be like Schmeagel over in the corner going, my precious, right? And hoarding it from other people. That's a spiritual gift is doing only that one and a Scottish accent. That's all I've got. I try to do Russian, it ends up Scottish. I try to do Australian, it ends up Scottish. Or Schmeagel. But we are over in a corner hiding our gifts saying this is mine as if God has blessed us for our own sake. And it's like, I'm sorry, but no, you have been blessed to be a blessing. You are my representatives. The greatest blessing I've given you is that you are called sons and daughters of God, washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are also my representatives. That's what I created you to do, to be my representative, to reflect my loving grace to a world that desperately needs it, that are drowning in hopelessness and are just hurting for hope. And we have the ability to be tangible hands and feet, loving people, moving towards them, if we're willing. And so I'm going to close this morning. And I know that I have basically just opened a fire hose and shot it at you. We could have spent five weeks on this. I hope that maybe you will go back to some of these passages that we've looked at. Did I skip anything? Oh, no, you're ahead of me. Good. Um, I hope that you'll go back to some of these passages that we've looked at that are, are listed in there and, and read these passages and steep yourself at them. But I want to I end with one last passage. This is found in 1 Peter chapter 4. This is Peter, one of the apostles, one of the guys who experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit in powerful ways and was used by God, even though he was just a fisherman, had no idea what was going on. God used him powerfully. And this is what he declared to us, beginning in verse 10. Here is the purpose of our spiritual gifts, to build up the body of Christ and to glorify God. Each of you, verse 10, should use whatever gift you have received in order to serve others as faithful stewards. It's not your gift, it's his gift empowered to you as stewards of God's grace, his charis, in its various forms. So if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that 
here's the point, not just to build up the body of Christ, but so that in all things God, not us, may be praised through Jesus Christ. That's the point of our spiritual gifts, is that we would love other people so that those other people who don't call Jesus Christ Lord, who would never step foot in this church, who would never come and see me using my spiritual gifts, or Pete using his spiritual gifts, or all of the small groups using their spiritual gifts, so those people at your workplace or at your school would come face to face with the love of Jesus Christ. And they would say, maybe there's something to this. Because let us not forget, although there is only one church, as, as recipients of the Holy Spirit, we are temples of the living God. And we bring the church. We bring our God everywhere we go. So when somebody meets you, you are representing our God. And how you live your life reflects not only on all of us and every other person who Christ calls Jesus Christ Lord, but it reflects on our God. So no pressure. All right, let me pray. And we'll close with a song. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ so that we don't have to be separated from you by our sins. I thank you that you have done everything that needs to be done so that we can be called your sons and daughters and so that we can be your representatives. God, we need your help. Jesus, we need you. And Holy Spirit, would you fill us up and strip away the junk, all the things that would impede us from representing you well. And God, we know we're not going to do it perfectly, but we bring, we just unclench the fingers of our heart from around our stuff. Not only the things we own, but our abilities, our resources, our time. And we say, God, it's all yours. Use me how you wish. Empower me how you wish. Give me the courage to be a vessel of your love that I would reflect your light into the darkness. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.